Welcome to Battle Rhythm, a podcast dedicated to security and defense issues from a Canadian and international perspective. I'm Steve Sadman. I hold the Patterson Chair in International Affairs at Carleton University. I'm also Director of the Canadian Defense and Security Network. Battle Rhythm is a part of the Canadian Defense and Security Network's podcast network, available on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and all the usual places to get your podcasts. Please join us every two weeks for our new episodes of Battle Rhythm, and also check out the other podcasts in our network. Uh, you can find them, again, on our website or at the CDSN Podcast Network on your favorite podcast provider. And before we start, we should acknowledge that our podcast is produced at Carleton University, which is located in unceded Algonquin Territory, which is home to the Anishinaabe Nation. Thank you. Welcome back to Battle Rhythm. Lena, it's been a while. How has your summer been going on? Hi, Steve. It has been a bit chaotic. I started my new role at the University of Toronto in the Department of Occupational Science and Occupational Therapy. Um, Congratulations. As a, thank you. It's been a bit of a whirlwind trying to get acquainted with a new institution, meeting new people, because I realized uh, after I was brought on that I actually don't know a soul at the University of Toronto, which is exciting, but also a bit scary. The team has been really supportive and really, really keen on the work that I'm going to be doing. I'm going to continue doing work in military, veteran, public safety personnel and family stuff, but within the context of occupational science and occupational therapy, which is a, a bit new for the department. And I think it'd be an interesting journey for me. So it's been a bit crazy this summer for myself and for my family. Is yes, this sorry. the first time you're teaching your own classes? Yeah, I think so. And I'm, because I've joined, you know, after all the assignments, all the teaching assignments have gone out, I'm sort of picking up a, on sort of gaps that have, have propped up. So my first year will be a bit of a a learning curve. I'm going to be mm -hmm. teaching uh, courses in older adults and geriatrics, which is not something that I specialize in, but I know that uh, I'll be able to, with some great support, be able to to do that without any problems. So really excited to be teaching back in occupational therapy. It's it's where I started from, so it's nice to, mm -hmm. to return. It's tough to start out teaching, so the focus shouldn't be on being perfect, just being clear and organized. If you can do that, then you build on that in future years. Don't make things too hard I, for yourself. I appreciate the advice and the support. Yeah, it's been it's been a while since I've been doing any in-person teaching. So yeah, I just have to be patient with myself. <laughs> I know that the Summer Institute has recently occurred and I've been following along on social media. Could you give us a, a high-level overview on how things went? It looked great. It went really well. We had roughly 18 or 19 participants. They came from, they were sort of uh, junior academics. They were military officers ranging from uh, relatively junior NCMs, non-commissioned, whatever the M stands mm -hmm. for, to colonels in, uh, in between. So we had uh, a certain number of military officers, and we had some people from the policy community, and we had, as I said, academics. So it was exactly what we imagined the, the summer to be. It finally took got us here because the First year was canceled, the second year was online, the third year we had a mostly academic cohort. Mm -hmm. And part of the idea of this is to have people share their perspectives. We're, we, as the, the presenters, are presenting a variety of information, but we want them to process it and share their different takes on their experiences and how they see things. And so this year was better than previous years because we actually had a diversity of folks from across Canada and from across government and across all the different pieces of the defense and security community 
So that gave us a lot more perspectives and uh, it went really well. It was a dynamic week. We had basically four days at Carlton, one day at NDHQ. At Carlton, we had all kinds of presentations from not just co-directors of the CDSN, but other experts on all kinds of things. We had a bunch of people from government pr uh, present their take. Uh, one of my favorite presentations was by Troy Crosby, who is ADM Matt. That means that he is the assistant deputy minister in D&D &D for materials, which is he's the procurement guy. Uh, within uh -huh. the military. And so he was terrific. We had people from uh, the policy branch to talk NATO stuff. Uh, that would be Ashley McCauley. We had uh, Murray Brewster and Anna Metaconnellis, so we had a couple journalists present their take on things. We had Navy Captain uh, Kelly Williamson actually present twice because one of our speakers dropped out. So she spoke with us on both media stuff, uh, how does the CAF handle the media, and then also during our section of public opinion, which had Nick Nanos at JC present a bunch of data on uh, the state of public opinion. So that was great. And then the, the one morning we were at D&D, we got briefed by the deputy commander of the Navy, by the intelligence people within D&D, &D, and then we had a round table with some of the senior people within the department. So the participants got to learn a lot. And the fun part for me is I get to learn a lot, even though I'm not technically, you know, a participant in these things. I'm an mm -hmm. one, of the, one of the organizers. Melissa, Sherry, Rachel, and Carolyn did a phenomenal job doing all of the hard, heavy lifting of this event. The food was good. The venue was good. The venues were good. Everybody was 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 very happy with the way we had organized things. I, I can't take credit for it. My, my the team did a great job, and uh, I, I really couldn't be happier with the way things proceeded. There was a whole lot of buzz afterwards by the folks who went there. That's on, fantastic on social media. So yeah, uh, and we got some. Of the There's a lot of activity on social media. And we also got I got to see some of the evaluations yesterday. Or, uh, Friday, and they seem to be quite positive. Uh, there's certain things we can do better, and we will aim to do better. We're going to try to get uh, people from other parts of government to get involved next year. Mm -hmm. But uh, overall, it was a terrific experience, and I think I think it gave people what they what they were expecting, and then some. Mm -hmm. One of the fun parts is that a lot of people came in expecting me to be intimidating and distant because Melissa and Sherry handled all the emails, and you know me, you know that I'm not all that. So uh, they were surprised to find that I was, uh, I was I was pretty friendly, and most of my cookies went over well. So, and that was of course, your cookies went over well. They look fantastic. So this week we want to talk about a couple different topics that got some attention over the summer. Yeah, um, yeah, and that were of interest to you. So the first one is the military is changing the program. Uh, for the housing benefits that gives to their tr the troops. That is that one of the challenges that the members of the Canadian Forces have is they are often moved around every two to three years across the country from going from one expensive housing market to another. And it used to be that the housing benefit was based on how expensive you're moving to. So people moving to Vancouver or Toronto probably got more benefits. Okay. People who are moving to lesser expensive parts of, of the country, which are all now more expensive than they used to be. Uh, got less benefits. Now they're changing the benefit to be based on salary, which means probably colonels and generals are going to get less money and, and people with uh, junior positions mm -hmm. will get more. But this always reminds me of, of, of Machiavelli once said that any reform will benefit. It will hurt hurt those who benefit by, by the old order and benefit those of the new order. And right. so those who are hurt are going to be louder than those who benefit. So uh, you you are interested in the story. I oh. am interested. So, I mean, what I know about this particular initiative is is what's sort of readily available. So, looking forward to to picking your brain on sort of the information that's not readily available. But what 
is of interest to me is I have done a lot of work in the past um, trying to understand the experiences of families as they move from post to post, the family's perspective. So accessing um, special education for children, accessing healthcare, and that has always been a challenge and continues to be a challenge. One of the things that has sort of always been there in the back of my mind is around access to housing. So finances aside, it's just also the logistics of a family moving from one post to the next and, you know, how frequently ha they have to do it. Given the past couple of years with the rising costs of living on top of what every, everything that's been changing with uh, in terms of the interest rates, I can only imagine the additional stress that this causes families if they don't have the means to, to sort of keep up with these, the costs of, costs of moving. So, I mean, this is, again, a particular interest to me because it's just another piece that families and individuals have to deal with as they're moving from from place to place. And again, I mean, we want to keep people within the military and want to keep have families be able to, to support operational readiness. And I think that, you know, from, you know, as a an outside observer, it seems like this is a is this is a good thing. Mm -hmm. This will this will ease the the burden on individuals and families when they need to move for work. So I don't know, you know, from your perspective, you may you definitely have more you know, from the policy perspective, like where, where this is coming from, to me, it seems like, oh, well, it's just, it's timely with the, the cost of living and things like that. So like with anything, there's probably a bit more behind, behind the story. Well, as far as I know, this is really imposed by Treasury Board and they are trying to figure out a way to save some money and to make it more equitable, that is make it fairer by having it be about your ability to pay. On the hand, the problem right. is that that's one sense of fairness. The second sense of fairness is you're asking some people to, you know, to serve in Toronto or Vancouver. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, this is a real problem for the Navy, for instance, because, uh, you know, half the Navy is based in Victoria. And that's yeah. a particularly expensive housing market. It's hard yeah. these days to be based in Ottawa. Ottawa used to be a very cheap housing market compared to other places. But I can tell you living here, my house has almost doubled in value in the past 10 years, uh, particularly mm -hmm. the last couple of years. So I think that this is a real challenge for the military. And I think I think they're making a huge mistake. One 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 mistake that was being oh, really? made was okay. what, well, one mistake was how it was communicated because it was kind of dropped and wasn't really presented well. So people got confused and it seemed like suddenly people had made housing decisions that they bought houses or got into long-term leases based on a certain math, based on previous support. And now mm -hmm. this would be upended. And if you want to, you know, we face a personnel oh, crisis, right? Yep. Retention, you know, it's so a lot of the people who are, you know, we're losing a lot of people in the military at the commander, major, lieutenant colonel ranks. And this is this reform, while it's going to direct more money to people who, who need it more in terms of their income, mm -hmm. it's, going to directly affect exactly those people that that are leaving the military and need to stay in the military right so i think it was a, the communication was a mistake i also think it was just a mistake period in that if you have a personnel crisis the last thing you do is make it more expensive to stay in the military right and so i think what should have happened is it should have been whether if treasury board says you got to save this money there should have been leadership from the defense minister from the prime minister to say, under ordinary circumstances, yeah, it'd be great to save money, but because we got a personnel crisis, we will allocate more money to personnel. One of the things we've been waiting for has been this defense policy update. And while the motivation of that was mostly about, hey, what are we doing with NORAD modernization, which wasn't really in the strong secure engaged defense review six years ago? Hey, what do we do at Latvia? 
one of the difference between now and six years ago is what was sort of a, a challenge with personnel. Now we have a, a real crisis and it's getting worse because as I keep saying, it's a self-reinforcing dynamic where if there's too few people, the people who are mm-hmm. left are being asked to work harder. Right. They're also asked to work in an environment where the other, other jobs are empty. And so that means that they're not getting the services they need. And so that's going to make them more disappointed and more likely to leave. And so housing is a mate, you know, it's a real problem for all Canadians. It is. And it's a real problem for a military. We ask them to move around every two to three years. So what I would have liked to have seen is a couple different things. One is more money, not less. And the second thing I would have liked to have seen is some real thought and effort to think about how do we move people around less often? We've got, we now have remote work. Mm-hmm. That's one thing that produced the movement. Uh, the second thing is, is just figure out how do we redesign career paths? That way you don't have people having to move every two to three years. You know, maybe you have to, maybe you still have to move, but make it less frequent. So that way you make this less onerous. And I think that's, that, that's fundamental to the retention piece in part because this modern military we have has not made a key adjustment to the way things were done 30 or 40 years ago, which as it was 30 or 40 years ago, it was a male, you know, much more male organization and okay. where their women, where their, their spouses didn't have careers. That's the way right. it used to be. But as you well know now, about, you know, now we have a military that is a bit better representative of women and have many, both men and women married or committed to people who have real jobs that require them to be in a place. Now, again, the work from home revolution might mean that they can take advantage of that to allow some greater movement of, of partners and spouses. But still, you're you're constantly asking people to upend their jobs to go and move with somebody else or live apart. And so then you get divorced and that also drives people out of the military. So I think what you're really pointing to is that this housing change, this change to housing funding is really a short-term way that the military is trying to address the larger issue of retention, right? So it needs, you know, job descriptions, job career pathways need to be restructured in order to keep people on because of all these other factors. And it sounds to me that, you know, this housing shift, this housing funding change, was their way to try to keep people? I don't think so. No? I think it was that you think that's like a strict okay. I think it was I think it was strictly responding to a treasury board requirement. That's the But I mean uh, it definitely is framed, you know, in these in these pieces that I've been reading as being a we're responding to housing, you know, the 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 the, the cost of living in Canada. So I mean it's definitely framed this way. But I mean, which is what's interesting in this conversation is that you're peeling back layers that this is much more than a, you know, a singular issue that there's it's layers of an onion of a larger issue that needs to be addressed, you know, and this was pushed forward because of requirements from the Treasury Board. If this was really about changing and supporting the military uh, right. to deal with the housing crisis, it would involve more money, not less. Mm-hmm. Well, the way they've framed it is that it's sort of like this reallocation and recalculation of, of it. Well, and, and it is that. Who, mm-hmm. It is that. And, and and again, we have competing notions of fairness. Is right. it fair to, to, to focus on how expensive the place is or, or people's means to pay for uh, this stuff? And I think both senses of fairness have uh, a role to play in this. And I think the military and the indeed a poor job of communicating how long it would take to make these adjustments. Because again, people felt like they were being betrayed because they had made housing decisions. Now we're going to be suddenly challenged by changes in in, in uh, the housing policy. But the good news is the changes are taking longer. 
There's mm-hmm. not to be quite as drastic. The, the big thing of our part of the big thing about this was the messaging was done poorly. So it created a, a big scare. But again, anytime you reallocate money, it's going to antagonize the people who are going to lose money. And right. people who are going to get the money are not going to be quite as loud about what they're going to get. So it was always going to be bad news and it was always going to cause a, a, a problem. But I think the way they announced it was problematic. I think, again, it's exactly the wrong kind of thing to be doing in the middle of a personal crisis. Yeah, I agree with you. This gets us to the second topic of the list of things that came out over the summer. You saw a survey or reports about a survey about how Canadians view the military. So what about that story got your attention? Where do you want to go with it? Well, what got my attention is, you know, I, up until I started my graduate work, I was very much like these people that are being pulled in this in this piece, perceptions of the military. And I had a very flat, one-dimensional perception of what the military was like. And so it resonated to me from 10 years ago. And it really opened my eyes in sort of doing this work and, and you know, meeting folks like yourself to really understand, you know, what is actually going on and how the military is perceived. Um, I have a, a, call, a friend of mine who has recently shifted her career just now working with military and veteran personnel. And what's been interesting is to see the perception that she has had around this very unique population. So when I saw this piece, it really resonated to, like I said, my, my experiences with the friend who's made this career shift, as well as to me from 10 years ago, and realized that I may not see the military, you know, in a certain way anymore. This perception that it's old and antiquated is still very much out there. So it was really interesting for me, sort of someone who's quasi within this area to see how, you know, regular Canadians observe the military. And it's also quite shocking because I think in Canada, we don't have a very clear vision of what the military is. People think of the military, think of, of course, you know, most recently like Afghanistan and Iraq and the and the wars there. But when they think of veterans as well, they think of, you know, the very clear, uh, a singular understanding of what a veteran is and what that looks like. So having this, and I think this is really important to sort of bringing light to policymakers in the government as to how the military is currently being viewed within the Canadian, the general Canadian landscape. So it sort of has spoke to me in, in different ways. And I think it's, actually really important for someone to hold a mirror up to say, you know, how are, how are Canadians viewing the military and, you know, what is driving these views? So, I mean, I think that's why, you know, this, this piece particularly resonated with me. I'm curious about your thoughts. To be fair, it's, you know, we constantly are inundated with stories about our ships that are 40 years old, our planes that are 40 years old, that the military has not been procuring weapon systems that would be suitable in a war Again, you know, the, the current war in, in Ukraine, mm-hmm. where we don't have anti-drone weapon systems, we don't have anti-aircraft weapon systems, we don't have enough anti-tank weapon systems. And so the notion that our military doesn't have the stuff it needs to fight in the 21st century, I don't think is a misperception. I think it's based on something that that's kind of real. But I, th- I think it varies. You know, it's not not the, not the entire military. You know, there are some parts that are, are well advanced and, and, mm-hmm. and, you know, futuristic. And there are other parts that, that, you know, again, they're relying on really old equipment. I do think what's interesting about the survey is it says that Canada should increase defense spending. Yeah. And everything I hear about what this government is doing with this 
much delayed defense policy update is that it may not be increasing defense spending, that, that there's already concerns about cuts, cuts to a variety of things that might be going on. Now, maybe they throw money at Norad modernization in uh-huh. Latvia, but they cut it elsewhere. One of the challenges that Adina and I had as Minister of National Defense was always announcing decisions. And then the question would be, how much of this is new money? How much is this reallocated in right, someplace right. else? And a lot Isn't of that things, typically the way, though? Well, I think that they could have they could been clear about it. And right. it is clear that we're spending more money than we once were, but we are also not keeping up with our the growth of our economy. Right. So right. I hate the two percent discussion when it comes to NATO, but just because I hate it doesn't mean that it doesn't matter politically when Canada is interacting with NATO. And it also is the reality that defense stuff gets increasingly expensive. The rate of the military equipment inflation, that is the price of military equipment, has gone faster than ordinary inflation, although perhaps not as fast as the inflation of houses in Ottawa and Toronto. But it's been going up. And so if Right. Everything costs more. The longer you delay building the ships, the more expensive they get. And so even though we're spending more than we were, and if we keep our commitments, that is buying the ships, buying the planes, doubling our force in Latvia, NORAD modernization, we're going to be spending more money. But again, I'll go back to the personnel crisis. The personnel crisis is not just a matter of money. You know, it's partly the culture change thing that we've been talking oh, absolutely. about. Absolutely. Yeah. But part of it's money. Part of it requires spending money on bases so that way people have more pleasant experiences within the military. Part mm-hmm. of it is paying them more. Part of it is, is figuring out a way to support them in their travel, support them in their, you know, in their movement, support them in their childcare, mm-hmm. support them so that way they can stay in the military. You know, it's not it's expensive to train people. And so you don't want to see them leave. It's hard to recruit them. We should need to throw more money at the recruitment process. That way we can do a better job of recruiting people. Recruitment process takes forever. So it's partly about changing processes, but it's also partly about putting money into it. And so well, I, in I, order I, to drive culture change, really, all those things that you're talking about in terms of, you know, supporting personnel, you know, giving them a quality of life that is worth, you know, staying in, it does require money to start. But again, it's not just about the money. There's a larger picture here that we need to examine, right? So looking at how, again, going back to personnel, the, the conversation around personnel, it means, you know, looking how we redefine jobs, how we need to structure jobs to enable people to live a life that's larger than than their role in the military so yeah it, it starts with money but it'd be interesting to see sort of you know who who di- dictates and prioritizes how that money's spent in order to change his perception of what the military's like yeah yeah I, I, there, there's a lot of stuff that has to be going on here i will say again the fun part about the poll is it shows that canadians want more mil- money to spend the military mm-hmm. even though the mm-hmm. parties aren't going to do it and that, that presents a wonderful contradiction in Canadian politics, which is there is not pressure on either the liberals or the conservatives to cut the military's budget, but there's not rewards for it either. That is, they won't get votes for doing that. Right. But they are going to face pressure about deficits. And the military is where a lot of the discretionary money is. And so even though people are saying they want money, more money to spend the military, the political inclination will be to cut, money, cut the military because they need to reduce deficits. I've been saying for several, you know, ever since the 2015 election that if you're pro-military, you want the liberals in power because they don't care about deficits. Uh, Stephen Harper cut the military's budget in his last couple of years because he was trying to get right. down to a balanced budget. Now there's pressure on the liberals to care about deficits. So they're now mm-hmm. more concerned. And we're seeing that with announcements about what Anita and Anzi be doing in her new position at the top of the Treasury Board, making sure that right. money is cut yep. out of the budget. And that's going to matter in all kinds of ways, and it's probably not going to help the military appear to be with it in modern uh, because it's going to make it difficult to spend money. 
I mean, what was shocking about the piece, I'm just looking at it now, is that 75% of those that were polled suggested that Canada should increase defense money. 75% is a lot of people. Yeah. That's there's a large percentage a, of the people that were polled. Yeah. Well, to be fair, I'm not sure how they asked the question of that survey. In a survey well, that the, the surveys that the CDS has done over the years, led by Nick Nanos and J.C. Boucher, is that they always express that question in terms of, would you like to see more money spent on the military, even if it means raising taxes? Right. Uh, <laughs> which is different. Which is different, but it, or if it means spending a little bit less money on your program. Right. I forget exactly how, but they present it as a trade-off because it is a trade-off. And It is. But the important thing is, while you don't get 75%, you still get more Canadians supporting spending more on defense than not. Mm -hmm. And that does speak to the fact that we live in a much more threatening environment than we did I was, 20 years ago. I was ago. going to add that piece as well, is that, I mean, there's a lot more happening. It would be interesting for me to track, you know, similar questions over the past 20 years to see how that has changed. I mean, given the fact, if the, the question was the same, but I mean, definitely, you know, there's a lot more happening in the world. There's a lot more scarier stuff happening in the world that, you know, has likely informed this response. Absolutely. Absolutely. Which brings us to the last topic we wanted to discuss today, which is domestic emergency operations. One of the challenges yes. the military faces with its personnel shortage is it's having this, you know, over the past several years, the pace of emergency operations has increased with climate change causing Absolutely. more and more disasters. And so we have seen something like 350 soldiers sent to the Northwest Territories to help to evacuate the territories that, have, that mm -hmm. the people in those territories who are being threatened by it. I mean, they, they Emptied out Yellowknife. I have a friend of mine who was in Kelowna who left Kelowna for a while and then I'll be back. Wow. Yeah. So we have had a severe, you know, the worst summer for fires in Canadian history. And the CAF has been filled out for part of that. So Steve, just wondering, has there been talk, you know, in your world around where, you know, environmental disasters fit in to planning and policies within the military? Because, sure. you know, in my memory, you know, things have been, you know, the military has been called on like the ice storm from 98, that sort of thing. Like those types of, you know, significant environmental events. But like we were saying, this is happening more and more. There was like the, the flood happening in Nova Scotia, you know, these forest fires that they're, you know, they're bringing in the military and all sorts of environmental disasters. Like how does that sort of fit in to planning for the military? Well, they hate planning. They hate doing it. One of the things I keep on pushing on is that Every defense policy for however long has always you know, enunciated a set of priorities where, you know, NORAD, North America, Defense of Canada, Contribution International, Peacekeeping and, and, and Security, and domestic emergency operations. But it's always been listed about fourth or fifth on the list and always seen as a lesser right. priority and always seen as an inconvenience. And what COVID taught us. And what, if you remember a couple of years ago, there were storms out in Vancouver that did a better job of isolating Vancouver from the rest of the country than a conventional attack would have done, right? We mm -hmm. lost the road and the, and the yeah. railroad connecting Vancouver to the rest of Canada. And more Canadians have been harmed by these disasters than by all the wars we've been fighting. Mm -hmm. uh, so it should be a priority, but it, because the military doesn't have a lot of personnel, they're down, again, roughly right? 10%, because they don't have a lot of excess funding, this is very difficult for them. They do build it into their planning assumptions. That is that it's all done by different military units in different parts of the country. So uh -huh. those in Manitoba know what the flood season is. And so they prepare right. their exercises so that way they will have more flexibility during the flood season. 
I imagine the same is true for other parts of the country where they usually have a, a pretty specific time of year where fires happen. Well, one of the problems of this year is that the fires started much sooner than usual and have been much more extensive than usual. So that's, that's taxed the military greatly. And of course, the military keeps on saying, we should not be the first responders, we should be the last responders. But there's a couple of problems with that. One is, is that the provinces who should have invested in emergency management and firefighters and all the rest, mm-hmm. They've done some of that and they vary in that, but a lot of them would rather have the federal government spend their money on it. Uh, military goes out and does it. While they can technically, they can charge for their services, okay. they never do because it's politically right. ugly. So the province is like, why should, you know, as soon as something happens, they're like, hey, let's bring in the military. If you remember back to the nurses going to the, in the, the military going into the nursing homes, the elder care yeah. facilities, mm-hmm. what was strange about that was the military went in. Their soldiers noticed a lot of abuse and neglect, reported it, mm-hmm. which embarrassed the premiers of both Quebec and Ontario. Yeah. But the premiers of Quebec and Ontario, nonetheless, wanted those troops to stay longer than they wanted to be there. The, the military is like, we need these mm-hmm. folks to do other things. Yeah. And Quebec and Ontario were like, keep them there, because as long as they were there, then Quebec and Ontario didn't have to pay for nurses, or it's not as much for nurses, right. and orderlies and all the rest of it for these facilities. So there's a built-in bias on the part of the province to underinvest, because They'd rather have somebody else pay for it. Um, then, you know, they know that the military's there to deal with extreme right. emergencies, and they'll just sort of set up conditions to enable that to happen. Is that? That's right. And so the military said, hey, how about we have another agency do this? How about we have a FEMA, the United States, has a federal emergency management yeah. agency. Some people would talk about having a federal firefighter agency for the summer forest fires. But that presents a, a variety of problems, two of which sort of get most of the attention, I think. One is it would require the provinces to agree to this new federal organization, you know, wide around mm-hmm. the country. Yep. And the, so the province, anytime you have to consult the provinces on anything, things don't go well. And the second is if you create a new federal organization that requires lots of able-bodied young people to do heavy lay, lifting, then you're presenting, presenting competition to the military at a time the military has a personal crisis. Mm-hmm. So it's not easy and there's not an obvious solution. Again, this is something that the province should pick up, but this government in particular has been very reluctant to challenge. To push that, right. I mean, they couldn't even get the data for the vaccines that they were handing out the province at the time where the where the government could have said, hey, we're not going to give you vaccines unless you share us the data who actually gets the vaccines. If they're not willing to do that, then I'm not sure when we're going to see this government put enough pressure on the provinces to, to do something. You know, to the get last... them to the table to create some sort of some a plan, because we know that these environmental disasters, these environmental crises are not going away and this can't continue to happen. I mean, it's happening much more regularly. So I think I'm just digging around to find out, you know, like, is there it doesn't sound like there's a plan. It's sort of, you know, it, when it happens, we'll do what we can with at the, the level of the province. And then, you know, we'll pull in the, the federal government and the military as needed. And that seems to be this dynamic that seems to be as wanted, not as needed. Right. So, I mean, this stuff isn't going away. We all know that. Yeah, I, I don't think it's going away. That's the, that's the no. challenge. And the military stuck. I would kind of like to see the military change its attitude a little bit and change its incentive structure. So that way there's more rewards for domestic military operations. So there's more leaves after after a significant operation. So that way mm-hmm. it be. So rather than seen as the number four thing on the party list, it becomes tied for first since it yeah. is yeah. affecting Canadians because they're not going to get relief from any kind of solution domestically. So they might as well face the reality and 
build a culture around making this less of an inconvenience and more of something that is part of their job, part of their identity. Mm-hmm. And that might help with yeah. recruiting because if, if you seek the calf helping out doing this stuff, you think, well, that's something I want to do. If you're only if you're only selling the military based on shooting people abroad and you're not actually doing that yeah. much of that shooting people abroad thing, then I'm not sure that makes sense for recruiting. So, but this is all very complicated and I'm just riffing. I don't really know a whole lot about it. The good news is one of our eight themes of the CDSN research, the one funded, one of the four funded by DD is on domestic emergency operations. And the second is on climate security. So we actually have half of our mines grant money focused on figuring out how to manage emergencies better and on how to deal with climate security. Most of the the first wave of climate security research will focus on the providing advice to the new climate security center of excellence uh, Mm -hmm. that NATO is going to be running out of Montreal. But there is definitely more people doing research on climate security what it means Absolutely. for Canadians, what it means to the military, what it means to the government, what it means to the provinces. Because it all comes back down to this, which is my favorite lyric for public policy, which is from Russia's free will. If you choose not to decide, you still have made a choice. And thus far, Absolutely. we've done an excellent job of choosing not to, not to decide. And so we're having ugly, ugly choices thrust upon us. Well, I'm glad it's on the radar. Thanks for tolerating my rant, Lena. The good news is that people will be hearing more for you for the rest of this podcast than me, because you uh-huh. interviewed <laughs> Rosemary Parks from Service Women Salute. Can you tell us a little bit about yes. what Service Women Salute is and how the CDSN is playing a role with all of them? Rosemary Park is the, the brains and the passion behind Service Women Salute. It's an organization that really promotes the contribution that women have made in the in the Canadian military and continue to make. And it's an opportunity for an organization to recognize and celebrate those contributions in a really meaningful way. The CDSN is one of the collaborators for this upcoming celebration, upcoming uh, dinner and workshops that the Service Women's Salute is putting together in Ottawa in October. So I've worked with Rosemary Park for a number of years to to engage in, in various research projects and initiatives to really highlight the work that women have done over the years. So I had the pleasure of speaking to Rosemary uh, a couple of weeks ago, and we'll be hearing that interview now, to discuss you know, the history of Service Women's Salute and give us some um, information about this upcoming event um, that's going to be in Ottawa. Excellent. Yeah, it's our pleasure to help Service Women's Salute uh, run this event. It's led us to meet all kinds of really interesting people, and I definitely think that we need to get the word out on, on what women in the past have done and what they're doing now. So I think this is uh, all good, and we're very happy that it's uh, it's playing out. And I got to meet Rosemary last week. Uh, we had a reception halfway through the, the Summer Institute where it was aimed to network our cohort of participants with a variety of partners and friends of the CDSN. That's uh, fantastic. Yeah, Rachel Wallace, our, our PhD student, who's our research coordinator, our, our project mm-hmm. coordinator, did all the work and organized this thing to, to force people to meet each other as opposed to just people standing around with other people they know in corners. Uh, and it worked really well. They did, a, they did a really nice job with it. And as a result, I got to meet Rosemary. And uh, she's very enthused about what's going to be happening and, and our role in all of this. And it, it helps meet one of the core CSM objectives, which is to foster a more diverse, inclusive, and equitable defense and security community. It's, I'm so excited with this, uh, this collaboration. Like I said, I've known Rosemary for quite some time, and it's so nice to see, I guess, my world's colliding in different ways. So I'm very excited. <laughs> well, that's the thing about this, this thing is, is that the community is, is 
not that large, but it, it there's lots of barriers to people meeting each other. And so anything we can do to, to get the word out so people can learn from each other what's going on, you know, that's, that's why, that's why we created the CDSN in the first place is, is so that way we can have these exchanges. So we're happy to play a role and uh, we're hoping that uh, more good things come from, from this collaboration. And uh, I'm looking forward to hearing your interview with Rosemary. So thanks again for, for doing the interview. And no problem. It was lovely speaking with her. Thanks again for chatting with me this week. Enjoy the last few days of summer before you have to go into the classroom. Will do. Thanks so much, Steve. Hello there. I'm Lena Tamsito, Assistant Professor in the Department of Occupational Science and Occupational Therapy in the Temerty Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto. I'd like to welcome our guest today, retired Lieutenant Commander Rosemary Park. Rosemary is the founder of Service Women Salute, Homage aux Femmes, Militaire Canada, project manager for the Queen's University Service Women Salute Portal Project, and the author of 45 military research publications. Following 20 years of military service, Rosemary has been extensively involved in Canada's nonprofit, philanthropic, and social enterprise sectors. Welcome, Rosemary, and thank you for making the time to speak to me today. Good morning, Lena. It's lovely to join you. To start things off, can you tell me a little bit about the history of Service Women's Salute? How did it come about? And what was your vision and your goals and objectives? We started uh, uh, eight service women. We started in 1992 with organizing a celebratory Canada 125 dinner on Parliament Hill. And we needed a name and we called it Service Women Salute Hommage aux Femmes Militaires. We were all in the military at the time. and the motivation behind having this celebration in Canada 125 was because we had missed the opportunity in 1985, which was the centennial of women's military service. Then Colonel Hellstrom, who became the first female Brigadier General, she pitched the idea of having that centennial celebration. It came back denied. And one of the notes in the uh, request was what you have denied what you have to celebrate anyway i'm sorry can we just go back it was denied because there was no recognition that women's experiences were different is that why it was denied and it was the surgeon general who denied it and this was the centennial of women's first military service in 1885 who were nursing sisters who were the first women Mm -hmm. to perform military Mm -hmm. service and so when general hellstrom showed me that uh, denied. I said, we just haven't marketed this correctly, aside it not sitting all that well with me, because I had been doing the research for the Swinner uh, Service Women in Non-Traditional Environment and Roles for five years. I waited until 1992 and thought we, we could do something to celebrate Canada uh, 125, and it came back approved. And so okay. that was the beginning of Service Women Salute, and it really was an impromptu event that was able to bring women together in large numbers. And this hasn't happened for a very, very long time. And so that uh, was the beginning of Service Women's Salute. So it was uh, an opportunity to celebrate women's experiences in, in service, correct? To say that we that we have made a contribution, and it may not be known broadly, but why are we waiting for someone else to do this for us? We need to act as women to to say that we're here and that we're proud 
and that we have one heck of a lot of skills to contribute. So tell me a little bit about how that event went in celebration of Canada 125. It was sold out. We had 304 women and four men who attended this beautiful confederation room in the West Block, which is now the House of Commons temporary Mm -hmm. site. It was a blast. It was these long rows of women who all attended as individuals. And then we left. We had war museum exhibits that uh, they brought in from the basement that they'd found uh, from an earlier temporary exhibit. And it was a blast. And then nothing happened. I left uh, the military and went into the community development world and only began to become interested to put my oar back in again in 2016. I the military it was up to the military to do its mandate. Um, and I was endeavoring to build community platforms and uh, didn't feel that I needed to add what I might be able to add until 2016 when I saw the media reporting uh, Veterans Affairs research by Mary Beth McLean and others saying Mm -hmm. that uh, women veterans were having difficulty living in Canadian communities. And I thought, oh, these are women who were on my watch uh, when I was in the military. And that was troubling. These were these were very concerning statistics that they were reporting for the first time. And then, of course, the class action lawsuit was uh, joined. Five individual claims were joined, and the class action lawsuit began in um, 2016 uh, for sexual misconduct, principally driven by women saying they had been harmed and they wanted restitution. When I saw those two. Uh, pieces of information appearing in the media in uh, December 2016, I said, I have to do something. This is not right. And so over 2017, I organized a second dinner. And this time it was at uh, Silver's Women's Salute at the Canadian War Museum, which we held. And this time with 470 people attending, again, sold out. But again, only an evening opportunity to bring women together. If I had to make a distinction between the long rows of tables in 25 years prior, Uh where individual women attended, this time in 2017, we had tables, circular tables in the Le Breton Gallery, and we had half of the tables reserved for women to sit together. They wanted to sit together. And so we had circles of women, not just individual women, but women coming together to enjoy the evening. So the legacy of Service Women's Salute continues in various ways. There's different projects that you've been involved in. But I want to talk a little bit about an upcoming event being held on October 12th to the 14th. So this is more than just a dinner. So Service Women Salute will be hosting the Service Women Aspire and Inspire at the Ottawa Conference and Events Centre. This is an event, my understanding, that is being hosted in collaboration with the Centre of International Defence Policy, the uh, Canadian Defence and Security Network, as well as the Atlas Institute for Veterans and Families. So what was the inspiration behind this upcoming event, which is more than just a dinner? 
Exactly. We left in 2017 on a high. It was an awesome evening. The the ribbons on women's uniforms and on their civilian dresses spoke to change, spoke to the engagement of women being tasked to perform many, many more roles than, yeah. for example, I would have ever possibly imagined and was allowed in during my military service. So we left on a high in 2017, but I also left on a, on a with a conclusion that the invisibility of women was still a difficulty. The Supreme Court Justice Marie Deschamps had been engaged by the Canadian government to investigate the sexual misconduct, to perform mm -hmm. a sexual misconduct review as an external authority in 2015. And she wasn't able to attend the dinner in 2017. She sent her regrets in an email to me. And she said, I am personally heartened that you are having this event. Women have been an invisible force for too long. And over the five years after 2017, we've taken that invisible force mission to develop with Queen's University, the Center for International and defense policy to create 32 projects to look at the gaps of information, the gaps in honoring, the gaps in caring, and the gaps in strengthening service women and their contribution to Canada. So that dinner in 2017 informed that we needed to just keep going. And over the five years, with the assistance of Queen's University and other universities and other entities, we've kept going. So with that dinner as the motivation. As well as all these projects. And all these projects. Yeah. We had we had COVID. So if women were isolated in Canadian communities as veterans, if we lost some of this social fabric that we were trying to build as a community with the objective of having celebration, COVID just yeah. scuppered so much of what mm -hmm. was possible. So we didn't have that chance to come back together. The rarity of celebration, the rarity of acknowledgement of women was paired with the year of reckoning in 2021. The military was the senior leadership, the misconduct, the exposure yeah. to the public that things weren't, still weren't well, weren't working well. And I said, okay, we need another event. And so Service Women Aspire and Inspire is a strength-based message. We have phenomenal skills. We choose to serve Canada in uniform, men and women. Women don't have, don't really have the opportunity to, to gather together. And so this is another opportunity that we're offering. But as you say, not just an evening. No, I was looking at the, the information that has been shared and, and made available online. And it's, it's not. There are opportunities to socialize, you know, beyond the dinner. There's opportunities to learn, to share, you know, a, a whole range of topics as well related we're to women's experiences. Yes. So we're taking advantage of come to one place, come to Ottawa, come to this uh, facility that is set up to have workshops. It's set up to have people connect with each other, to network, mm -hmm. um, to have private conversations, to have a, a room set aside. If all of this information and all of this connection and 
is triggering associations that are difficult to be supported in whatever need that you bring to the event that lets you participate, that lets you feel that I served only a year. I didn't make it through basic training. You chose. You chose to serve Absolutely. a larger purpose. We all make a, are making a contribution, and this is the opportunity for short service and long service to celebrate as well as to validate. Right. Exactly. So we know, you know, from a research perspective, you know, I've talked about this that a lot of women that have gone through service really don't identify with what, you know, the Canadian idea of what a veteran is. So, I mean, I think this is a beautiful opportunity for women to get that, that recognition and that thanks for, you know, your service and that acknowledgement. To feel that you belong to that larger purpose. Yeah. And um, so the workshops that we've um, developed and these other surrounding supporting opportunities, we have we have nine major activities over the three days that people can participate in. Some of them are drop-in on the on the. Can front. you can you tell us a little bit about a couple of the activities that are that have been confirmed? Love to. So the learning workshops, which are Thursday, is our chance to find out things to learn and go, huh, didn't know. But it's also our invitation and our request to share what it is that you know from your military service, from your experience as as a as a veteran in communities. Share what you know. And we're creating these opportunities for people to see how this can be recorded. And so the learning workshops set the stage of five workshops. One is military identity. Who are we um, uh-huh. when we put on that uniform and when we take off that uniform? Yeah, absolutely. Who are, who are our supporters in this process? What's our story? What's the narrative? What's been said about women that we think, well, you know, that wasn't my experience. I don't agree with that. What is our story? What is our narrative? And the opportunity to have that, to to tell that story is another workshop surrounded by opportunities to record a small story, stories that bring us laughter, the things that we did. Oh my God, the trouble we got into. (laughs) Everybody who's in the military has a bucket full of stories. Of course. And they, they make us smile still. Stories of thanks. Who, what women helped us when we were in the military? We, we haven't ever asked that. So those sorts of workshops, we have another workshop on caring for yourself, caring for each other. Significant elements in a military service, you've been injured, you've now got a disability, you now need support. That's in one of the stations in that workshop. The Sexual Misconduct and Support Response Center is Mm -hmm. there with support for what is now being developed with the the Sexual Misconduct and Support Response Center from when it was originally created to now a much different looking body of of support. Quebec Veterans Foundation, they're going to be bringing women who have used their social entrepreneurship, women veterans and serving women who brought their social entrepreneurship to support their own needs and what they think is able to support others who may have PTSD, may have had experiences that they're creating social entrepreneurship opportunities around only though sadly in Quebec, but they are the leaders 
of all the provinces in what the Quebec Veterans Foundation has done. It's and having them of, there could inspire others in other they, yeah, to parts of the country to, say, to do something. You did this? You did yeah. this? You created this cafe? I'm gonna not oh I'm not gonna pronounce it correctly. Cafe Ocha Parlemalong. It's a lovely cafe in Quebec City that she's created for veterans. It's it's very beautiful. And it shows the personal agency of women, of military women. We are quite awesome. We haven't been quite as awesome in civil society since 1968, but that's another project that we're working on. Fourth workshop is contemporary service. Let D&D, let CAF show what they're doing now. Let them show us the incredible roles and deployments that military women now take as a matter of course. This brings the seamless Canada argument of Veterans Affairs and, and the Canadian Armed Forces to the personal level. Women who are serving now, uh, women who have had military service, we all are able to come together. So this is a wonderful opportunity to bring people together who may have been living in the civilian world for quite some time to see what else is available, to see what is being done within the military right now. I'm looking at your the list that you had sent me of contributing organizations, and it's such a wide range. There's the, the Canadian War Museum, Library and Archives Canada, D&D CAF, the, um, the Sexual Misconduct Support and Resource Centre, the CF Morale and Family Services, Pathways to Better Days. So this is a very diverse group of organizations that you're bringing together, as well as diverse group of women and those that want to support women. Well, this, this is exactly it. We, we've been strangers for a very long time, military women to each other, military women with veterans who have served earlier, our families. Women are the principal caregivers, and there is no research on military women and families. It's fascinating. Just as an example, we are strangers to knowing the, the multiple roles that we are doing. But I think one of my, be my best conversations, they are all wonderful conversations, was talking with Quilts of Valor. So they're going to be at the Service Women in Arts exhibition oh, on Friday. Wonderful. So that list that I sent you doesn't include the 20 tables of no. participating organizations on the, on the Friday. But Which one I'm sure them, will continue to grow between now yes, and then. Yes, and I'm sort of, and now I have to find space. We've got, <laughs> oh my God, I'm not sure where we're going to put everybody. But Quilts of Valor, what a wonderful story of a, of a military spouse who, when in Afghanistan, learned that uh, soldiers had died in an IED explosion. The soldiers were injured. And she said, what can I do with my skills? And was quilting. And she began quilting. And it has now become this national initiative mm -hmm. of women who may or may not have any military connection. And they quilt band, they quilt a patch, they quilt a whole quilt there to support serving members and veterans who have been physically and mentally injured. It includes service women, it includes women veterans. And so I've asked um, Quilts of Valor if they can bring some of the quilt they'll have a couple of quilts at a table to show yeah. what fabric arts does what it the role that they're performing it's the most amazing story of grassroots problem solving and this is really what um the event is is celebrating is we have the formal roles of 
calf and vac, mm -hmm. they have a mandate. Yeah. They have to perform the formal roles. The institutions are there to support the educational institutions, the research, the cultural museums, etc. But we're at the grassroots level also problem solvers. And it's bringing this personal agency and the collective agency to showcase. Because there is possible. stuff happening out there, right? Absolutely. Grassroots organizations. But I think because they're they're small and they're growing, not everyone's aware of it. And I think... And this is know, this... The, the relationships that I've been developing with Service Women Salute and others, mm -hmm. including yourself, when you did that wonderful environmental scan with Sonia Dussault of what's out there. Right. in the community. And we were not surprised. This is one of our hashtags. I am not surprised. But what has grown from the environmental scan that you did in 2019 mm -hmm. to today is very illuminating. Who knew when we started that project right. with the portal right. project at Queens, what now is going to be on display six years, five years later. Well, congratulations on all of your hard work on, you know, the the hard work of continuing to, to bring visibility and recognition to women that are serving, who have served or spearheading this wonderful event. As we wrap up, can you tell us how people can learn more about it and how they can register to attend? Yes, we have a uh, Service Women Salute community website, I guess you could say, SWS aspireinspire.ca. It's specific to this event. And we're using social media also, Service Women Salute Canada social media, and our ally private Facebook uh, women, service serving women and women veteran groups who are also promoting it. The Atlas Institute for Veterans and Families, we're cross-promoting. CIDP cross-promoting. Center Defense Security Network, thank you very much. Carleton University and CDSN for um, really uh, stepping up and supporting this event. They're cross-promoting. And um, there's also a parliamentary uh, reception that's happening on the Monday following our event that is being hosted by two members of parliament who are part of the House of Commons Standing Committee of Veterans Affairs. They are doing right now a study, first study of uh, women veterans that the House of Commons has done. And they are hosting this parliamentary reception. So we're cross-promoting the opportunity to also attend that event on the Monday. And they are similarly doing the same at That's their great. end. So we'll include the, the links to the event in the show notes so people can have access to, to that information. Thank you so much, Rosemary, for your time. It's always so lovely to, to speak to you and to hear about all the amazing work that you and your your team are doing. It's a delight. And I'm so glad that you're at U of T carrying on um, with all the Thank work you, that you have done. My gosh, it's... Uh, <laughs> Mutual admiration right right about this point. <laughs> this, it blows off. What a lovely way to end this interview. Thank you so much again for your time.